0: Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast, particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know, someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up, reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school, like I am, drop me an email detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and take care. This episode's guest is John Gonzalez. He is a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter, performer by the name of Yanni Blue. Uh, He is a filmmaker. He is a journalist. He does many, many different things. So many of my guests are sort of multidisciplinary talents. Uh, you got to have a couple of different hustles, really, to get by nowadays anyway. But uh, John is currently based in Los Angeles, originally from the Bronx, New York. And uh, we initially connected via LinkedIn, Uh, I think John was just looking for other uh, queer men of color to network with, and we struck up a friendship. Uh, One of the many things uh, John does is he hosts a podcast, co-hosts a podcast called Bigger Than Our Dreams uh, with his friend Amir, and together they navigate their journey of being plus-size black queer men in the entertainment industry, which is something that you don't see very often. And uh, Yanni has thankfully agreed to uh, take part in this interview with me, and it's really, really... (sighs) It's illuminating and it is inspirational in a lot of ways. Like, John just has such a great spirit and uh, the interview came during a time when I really needed his good vibes. Uh, We talk a lot about intersectionality and how that kind of plays into the way that we feel about ourselves and our self-image. And I think that, you know, something that we discuss uh, with regards to intersectionality is such a a unique perspective, and I, I really think that it needs to be heard, and it's about just kind of figuring out where the hell you fit in and what you are, because I think a lot of us, particularly those of us who are over a certain age, try so hard to assimilate and then code switch and it's like okay do i sound like this when i you know i'm around my queer friends do i sound like this when i'm around my black friends do i sound like this when i'm around my white friends do i sound like this when i'm trying to sound professional and it, it just it it mentally it's a lot to deal with and uh just talking to John really kind of validated a lot of things that I've had in my head for many, many years. Um, we also talk about the music industry hustle and getting in behind the scenes and maybe trying to figure out how to make your way as a front person. Uh, there's so much in this conversation and I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, Yanni Blue, let's get it started. All
1: right, uh, my name is Yanni Blue. I release music as Yanni Blue. My real name is Johnny. From the Bronx, New York, started off as a songwriter and over the years have delved off into being an artist, being a podcast host, being an actor, being a screenwriter, being a journalist. Just creative on all fronts and really these days looking for more ways to funnel my creativity into things that help people and benefit people.
0: I saw you on the Break the Barriers video yesterday. That was a surprise because I don't know. If we even talked about this, I've been working Backline and Black Mental Health lines. That's beautiful.
1: I saw you repost it and I was like, I love how small my world is getting. Yep. It shows that I'm associating with the right people because I, it makes sense that you'd be a part of it, but I had no idea.
0: Yep, yep. So when I saw the video, I was like, oh shit, I know this dude. So it's really funny that even though we know each other and the work that we do is so similar to one another, this thing came up that we were both a part of, but neither knew that the other was a part of it. <laughs> I
1: love things like that because, like I said, it just shows me that I'm circling the right. I don't want to say circling the right drain. That sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> sounds <bad. laughs> I am attracting the right energy because it, it's like minded people and it's the same people. So it was really cool to, yeah, and to know that you were a part of that. Though.
0: Man, they're trying to do good things for people and mental health. It's part of the reason why I do this podcast. And it's such a taboo topic still, particularly when it comes to black folks and brown folks, So you grew up in the BX. Mm -hmm. And what was that like? I remember the BX from when I was a kid. And in my 20s, I actually worked on Fordham Road in the Bronx for a number of years. So what was your Bronx experience like?
1: So I'm lying a little bit. I grew up between the Bronx and Virginia, but the Bronx pretty much most of middle school and high school. Okay, Born there, moved to Virginia Beach when I was four, came back at 12. So Kind of dual citizenship in that way. But uh, yeah, the Bronx, man, it was a beautiful place to grow up. It was interesting because I definitely wouldn't be the person I am without living there. Just the level of freedom growing up in, in New York City gives us. And especially coming from the South, where I was on a school bus every day, and all of a sudden it's like, here's a Metro card. Good luck, kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that helped me because as I started to realize just what was available to me, what worlds I was expected to be a part of versus not... I, I had the freedom to access every world that I wanted, regardless of where people thought I belonged and just kind of figuring myself out when it came to, to race. Cause I'm Dominican, but I'm not Not that I don't associate with being Dominican. That sounds crazy, but I'm not culturally like I'm second generation. So it's like, I don't hang out in Washington Heights like that. I grew up right. in Virginia. So there's a lot of cultural differences and then being gay. So the Bronx gave me enough space to just explore all of that.
0: And in terms of your cultural identity, it's interesting talking to younger people because, again, we're having this conversation. You're in your 20s. I'm in my 40s. My no, grandparents- No, 32. Oh, I you're wish I was in my... Oh, see? It's that young <laughs> face. <laughs> <laughs> you're saying this and looking 24. So, so yeah. <laughs> You're too kind. Hilarious. Um, you're second generation. I'm second generation. Are both your parents from DR?
1: Yeah, my family's on both sides are from Dominican Republic. My father was an immigrant. My mother was born in America.
0: Okay. My grandparents are from DR. You're queer. I'm queer. You grew up in New York City. I grew up in New York City. So a lot of similarities in experience. But I mean, there are probably a lot of reasons our experiences are also different. And I'm wondering, because of who you are culturally, did you ever feel like othered as you were growing up? And particularly as a gay man... What was that like as you went through your teenage years, kind of coming to the realization given given your background?
1: It's a great question. So I have one sibling. We're 10 years apart. I'm the older one. So I spent my first 10 years of life by myself. And I think it was kind of impossible for me to feel othered anywhere because I always kind of had my own back. Like I know how to entertain myself. And in addition to that, we moved around a lot. So I also learned early on how to just blend, which is something that eventually in life I've had to learn to walk backwards. But for a long time. I learned how to assimilate. So as far as being othered, I always knew that I was a little different. And even just outside of sexuality, just interest, just anything. Like I always knew that I was always a little bit out of the nice little boxes that were made for everybody. And I just thought that I was better for knowing how to navigate every room. And it was a survival skill that I'm thankful for. But as I got older, I realized that I had compartmentalized so much that I couldn't figure out who I was. And I think That speaks so heavily to my journey now, just trying to surround myself with, like you just said, look at all our similarities. That's not a coincidence. When I reached out to you, I was trying to find people that I felt had somewhat of a similar existence to me so I could start breaking down the walls and seeing how other people who had the same check marks as me were navigating more holistic lives and not so separated, not like, all right, when I'm uptown in the Bronx, I talk a certain way. When I'm in the village, I talk a certain way. When I'm in the studio, I talk a certain way. When I'm around white folks, I talk a certain way. I got so tired of doing that.
0: <laughs> the code switching is real. And I think some people, maybe myself included, so used to it, you don't necessarily even realize when you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And when I was younger, I think that caused a lot of conflict. But also I was still in the closet and there was a lot of stuff related to that as well. We're kind of in a different world now where you it's a little safer for people to be all of the compartments of what they are at the same time. Yeah, How do you feel about where you are in your journey to just being your full self?
1: I'm closer than I've ever been for sure, but it is a work in progress because as you start to address all the little boxes you build for people and all the code switching, you start to wonder which parts are real and which parts aren't. And really in that part of like, did I really like this because I like it or because I thought people would like me more because I liked it or even with making music, just understanding that as a large black man, the most successful genre was gonna be R&B and hip hop, which I love, but I listened to everything. So as I tried to branch off into other worlds, people kind of pushed back. I was like, am I doing this just to be different or do I actually wanna be in other places? Like those questions are still lingering, but I think they're a lot quieter than they used to be. So I feel the most secure in my journey right now than I ever have before. But that's a testament to, again, surrounding myself with examples of people who I feel are living authentically as well, and being able to reinforce that for each other.
0: What made you decide to be a musician? That's usually the first question I ask of anybody who's a musician that I have on the show, but your story is so so layered. I wanted to touch on a couple of other things first, but what was the spark for you to become a musician?
1: Well, I always loved music, like most people say. I came out of the womb singing and then being a child of the early 90s, you can't not want to sing when you got Whitney and Mark Anthony and Boyce and these great vocalists on the radio. But what made me actually decide to want to pursue it, again, going back to that sort of survival mentality, I saw an end that seemed possible for me, which sounds terrible looking back, but I, I didn't see myself in anybody until I saw The Dream or the songwriters, James Fauntleroy. I was like, well, I kind of look like those guys and they're behind the scenes. And that was the end that made me say, okay, if I want to do this, this is the only way that I could do this. Spark. Writing
0: writing, kind of came before performing for you.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah.
0: Okay. And was it always writing music or were you journaling? Were you writing poetry? Were you doing any of that stuff?
1: Yeah, I did a little bit of everything. So I had a really great English teacher who... um Got me into edgar Allan poe who's i don't know is he from the bronx but i don't know he's he lived in the bronx
0: really i, I didn't yeah. know that so <laughs> yeah there's all, there. his house
1: yeah his house is preserved right. by fordham a little yeah, park right. over there so he got us into edgar Allan poe so it was a mix i was always naturally a good writer i was the kid that would do my essay the day of and get an a so i just kind of knew which is again why i thought that songwriting would be is all very left-brained of me i just kind of figured i like music i'm good at writing they should go together but it's always been a little bit of everything. I I mean, my day job now is journalism. I write full-time. I do screenwriting, script writing. So it was always a little bit of everything.
0: Very multi-layered. And mm-hmm. I always ask people for their coming out story as well. And I'm curious what your experience was navigating your sexuality. Yeah.
1: So I started to uncover my sexuality at 16, which is ironically the same year that I started doing music. And um, again, just in the spirit of boxing off my life I was actually able to create a little world for myself where I was able to be out so I had access to the internet to MySpace, and New York had like a local early pre pre-version of Facebook called sconex where kids would connect through school networks essentially okay and there was a lot of queer kids there and I knew that I liked boys so I would just talk to boys and I was smart enough thank god because there was older men on all these sites of course and I'm Pretty talking cool. about the the BGCs and the Adam for Adam I knew to just talk to people my age And uh, I connected with a couple of other boys who I was able to grow with, who some of them have become lifelong friends. Thank God it worked out that my three best friends in high school all turned out to be queer. So I had a little bubble, which was more than a lot of people had. Mm -hmm. So I I graduated high school with a boyfriend and I had a pretty healthy uh, social circle as far as coming out. My mother took it hard when I was about 18. She took it pretty hard. And I think she took it hard because she found out through I left one of my dating profiles up. Oh, And it was very, very scandalous. So uh, so she had to find out through the sexual lens. And I think that just always terrified her. But in the years since she's come to, but I, there was never really like a coming out. Like I said, I had my little bubble and over the years, I've just learned to make it grow and grow to where it encompasses my whole life. And as far as coming out to family, I kind of just waited till I had a partner I really cared about and just started bringing them around. And when it came to my music, I was closeted up until I moved to Los Angeles. And I made a very conscious decision when I got here that I couldn't. And I was that person that would just be like, hi, I'm gay for like the first year, (laughs) 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 but it helped me overcome. And again, I was able to create a great circle of people who supported me. So yeah, I didn't have any scary coming out story.
0: That's amazing. And I love the progression of society (laughs) where for people. Of a certain age, it's not a scary thing anymore. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know how old your mom's is, uh, but I would imagine I'm probably equidistant in age between you and her. Mm. And it was a time period when being a man who had sexual interest in other men could, particularly in New York, could come with a very severe penalty. Mm. We lost a lot of people. Uh, And not to say that isn't, something that still exists but obviously technology has changed medicine has changed it's not what it was in the 80s and 90s Uh, so uh, were you able to sit down with your mom and be like look this is kind of this did that take some time
1: my mom had gay friends so i think she also knew their experiences so i think she had all that fear as far as like a sit down i don't remember there being one specific talk but it just was over the years and i think She just had to see me around people and understand that I had a good radar for people because she's from an era where, like you said, like we lost a lot of people, a lot. And especially, unfortunately, Dominican culture has a whole subculture of how men sleep with men and there's a whole mess there.
0: The whole DL phenomenon, kind of all that stuff where like people's fluidity was, I don't really don't think it's recognized that much now. But Mm -hmm. back in those days, it wasn't recognized at all. It was like you were either gay or you were not gay. And there was a stigma around Mm -hmm. being gay. So a lot of people tried to force themselves into being 100% straight in public, but they did what they had to do undercover. And unfortunately, because people were careless or some people were spiteful or whatever it is that led to bad things happening for some folks.
1: Yeah. And I was aware of a lot of that. I think that goes back to probably why I knew to stick to people in my age group. Again, being in New York, you're not too far away from that. That history looms over the city, Mm -hmm. especially I came out, started experimenting in 2006. So it wasn't too far removed from that. So I understood. And I think that I knew that I wanted better for myself. And I internalized it a bit because like I said, I, I knew that in the Bronx, I couldn't be a certain way. I reserved a lot of stuff for the village. And even that sort of drove a wedge in my personality for a while where it was just like, what part of me am I suppressing? I don't even know. Like, am I more feminine than I want to be? Does it matter? But yeah, definitely. I remember kind of catching the tail end of that and just seeing the impact that it had on guys, not even that much older than me. Because I've noticed just with queer people, the gap, like every three years, it's a whole different world. (laughs) It's true. I have friends now, I'm 32. I have some friends that are like 36, 37, and they had a whole different experience. And I'm sure you go Further back, it's completely different every couple of years. So I, I get that point of like, it, it's night and day when you go back far enough, you, you encompass a full history of like, from the fifties up, it's a whole fucking different world every decade.
0: It, it really is. You bring up an interesting point, which is how do you get your queerness and what does it mean? Because I am 14 years older than you. I struggle with this to this day and I don't want to be insensitive to anybody who might be listening. But Mm -hmm. there is, in a lot of people's eyes, what a stereotypical gay man is. And based on presentation, neither you nor I is that. Right. And there's obviously nothing wrong with being stereotypically. There's nothing wrong with being flamboyant. There's nothing wrong with being stereotypically effeminate. Or there's nothing wrong with being promiscuous. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Right. But it's similar in terms of race, where it's like, you almost have to play a game with yourself about what am I, because straight people would be like, well, you're not gay enough. And then gay Mm -hmm. people will be like, you're not gay enough. Yeah. So it's like, how do you get to a comfort level with who you are? Because for me, it's like, all right, I don't think I'm a particularly effeminate person, but I'm also not putting on airs. I'm not trying to be somebody that I'm not. This is who I am. And look, I've sucked a lot of dicks in my life. I am as gay as anybody else out there. And I think some of it is a looks can be deceiving kind of thing. But also I'm like, yeah, I remember this gay guy, a friend of mine getting mad at me because I wasn't interested in Lady Gaga. And he was almost like you have to assimilate that way to mm-hmm. be respected by, quote unquote, your own people. And I'm wondering how you deal with the struggle of your own personal authenticity versus what people say you should be.
1: Mm. I had a a producer (laughs) once. Sorry,
0: I gave you a lot there.
1: You got me together. My my producer who's straight, I'm going to answer your question, but I just had a quick example. Um, I was pitching for some queer scholarship or something. And just in general, I keep getting passed up for shit. And I was telling him, bro, what the hell? I'm not getting any of this stuff. And he's like, Johnny, you're homosexual. You're not gay. (laughs) And that was his distinction. So that's what your example kind of made me think of. He was like, you're just not gay enough for people, but Okay, as far as how I navigate it, what I had to understand was I have to create my own definition, and I have to live by that, and I have to endorse that, and I have to uplift that as a creative, as somebody who puts art out into the world. I have to put what I want to see, and that's literally everything that I've been doing with Tariq has been just what did we not see growing up so that we can feel seen? What did we want to do that we weren't allowed to do? That's how I've been asserting who I am because I realize that it's not a question of I hate when being gay is just boxed into like, do you like Lady Gaga? Do you paint your nails? Do you like Drag Race? Do you um, like Drag
0: Race? Yeah, that's the one I've gotten recently. I, I mean, no diss, no shade. I've never watched an episode of Drag Race in my life, and I'm not really interested. Blasphemy. Know, right? <laughs> Here come the pitchforks.
1: Right, right, right. Greatest show on earth. But i it is to say that like, I would get the opposite. I do love Drag Race. I had a friend who I've known for almost 14 years, he'd be like, Girl, you really putting on? And I'm like, no, I watch this show religiously every Friday. Why do I have to look a certain way to like Drag Race? But to answer your question, it has really just been a battle of surrounding myself with people like me because we are one of one down to the DNA of it. But truthfully, like there's about 100 other people like us out there. Just go find them and be with them and build your tribe that's how you figure out who you are. I have a friend now, Mike Brown, shout out to him. He's a dope podcaster as well. He's another guy, masculine presenting, straight presenting, plays basketball, does the whole nine. He got into ballrooms. He was like, what? I just want to figure out if I have a feminine, you know, I want to figure that. And just seeing him explore that, I'd never heard anybody say that. Right. And it was like, okay, I, I think that femmes and trans people are so inspiring because they're out in the world constantly just having to prove themselves. And we get to just go out every day. Right. And nobody gives a fuck. So it's right. like, if this motherfucker can go through all of this shit and go out every day and put on heels and do whatever, I can show up in the world and paint my nails one day if I fucking want to. I could show up in the world and wear a Drag Race merch shirt, which I've done a few times. And people are like, who's that girl on your shirt? And I have to explain <laughs> to them. This is a drag queen. It's not a real woman. But that that's how I'm actively doing it. Just, I'm just siphoning through the world now and just like, okay, are you my person? Are you going to not invalidate me in the things that I like? Okay, I fuck with you. We don't have to like all the same things, but we can mesh enough ways. That's what I need.
0: Right. And I do think it's important for people who have the ability to pass to uh, figure out a way to be open about that because A, it makes it a safer space for people who can't pass or refuse to pass or don't pass. And also it, it removes the stereotype a lot of ignorant people have that you can't like basketball and you can't have bass in your voice
1: it's stupid and it's almost stone age because I asked this question recently in an episode that I did because we were all in our 30s I'm like do you think it stops with us do you think the kids under us had this figured out a little bit more and they were like yeah they feel like they see more younger people who are just kind of like these are all the parts of who I am they show up and lay them all out they're free and it's not so much like when I was growing up I felt like I was a Swiss army knife of like all right which which Johnny you guys want to see? Right.
0: Like, who do you have to be around these people? That exactly. should be so tiring.
1: It's a lot of work. And <laughs> I feel like a broken record sometimes when I'm talking about wanting to be surrounded by Black queer people. But I didn't have that privilege for a long time. Like you talk about privilege. Some people are lucky to navigate this world and just fall into rooms that are like-minded. Right. I didn't. I've had to always be in other rooms and assimilate, which is fine. It's taught me so much survival skills. And it's taught me so much about people. It's made me who I am. I'm proud to be well-rounded, yada, yada, but I've also seen people existing in rooms where, like I said, where they are more like-minded and just the advancement is different. The energy is different. I walk on set now with Tariq and our photographer is a plus size queer man and our playlist is all our songs. And I feel different than when I stepped on a set with a skinny white woman who doesn't understand my body or where I'm coming from, my music. When I go to these label meetings, And it's a older black straight man who doesn't really connect with me, but he'll sign every rapper off the street because he's from the same street as them. And there's none of that for me. So I have to create that for the next generation and create that in my community.
0: And it's again, just fantastic stuff. There's a podcast that you referenced called bigger than our dreams, which I think is really, what's the word I'm looking for. It's inspirational. Thank you to folks. And I appreciate that y'all are doing it, that we got young cats out there that are fully loving themselves and representing different perspectives and putting light into the world where it's like no shade, no drama. Everything is on a positive tip. And I'm curious how you and Amir put that together and what's your mission behind the podcast?
1: So my background was primarily in songwriting for the last 10 years. And navigating the music industry that songwriters really are where the diversity is we look like all different types of people and i was for for a while the youngest in the room so i would come into these rooms openly queer and again you also know from being in the music industry most other people are queer not openly queer
0: and i was yep. navigating
1: rooms and that's no no disrespect to anybody and now, that ain't
0: that ain't just the music industry my whole is mo true. is everybody's queer
1: what? i'm Put that on shirts.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure those shirts exist. Yes, I need that shirt. <laughs> I need
1: that shirt. But yeah, I was in these rooms where I was almost being made to feel like I was a bad person because I was out, because these guys are basically looking at me like, Shh, we don't talk about that. And I'm like, huh? So as I started releasing music, well, I started releasing music because I wanted to connect with people. And I'm like, I have these songs, I have a voice. Let me just figure this out. I connected with Amir, who runs the Everyman Project, which was a photo series highlighting different male body types. And I was so inspired by that. And then just hearing his journey through the modeling industry was a little different. I mean, it mirrored music industry, but there's more pushback in model and fashion industry for plus size bodies right now than there is the music industry. All we have in the music industry is Lizzo, essentially, on the real forefront of that. And then a bunch of women who have augmented bodies saying, my body, my choice, which is beautiful, but there's no push for that. Right. And there's no push for queer men, especially shout out to Saucy Santana and Lil Nas X, but they lean into the extravagance of it all.
0: Right. And I mean, most of the queer men musicians out there have a certain body type. And it again plays into, I mean, maybe it's not a stereotype because I think no matter what your gender is in the music industry, now there is this kind of pressure to be thin and camera ready at all times. Or at least being
1: sexy. You got to sell sex somehow.
0: Yeah. Whereas back in the day, you could have a Luther, you could have a Ruben Stutter. And I mean, Ruben Stutter didn't come up in the industry the traditional way anyway. But right. bigger people, I honestly can't think of anybody except for Lizzo at the moment. I was about to say Adele and I was like, oh no, she ain't fat no she, more. <laughs> she, she shrunk. Yeah.
1: But, but just, just seeing that void and seeing how much me and Tariq empowered each other. And it's kind of goes hand in hand with the mental health because I was so depressed with the music industry really like this is ass. I don't want to do this no more. So to be in that bubble with him and just being able to empower each other, uplift each other, it was like, all right, resulted in a song, which was Can't Compete, which was our single. And I was like, we should surround this record with conversations and with people that look like us so that they understand it's for them. And it just snowballed into a podcast. And we've had some incredible guests and just people telling their stories from the modeling industry. I've had other songwriters on there. I've had Some women on there that have told, which is obviously like the women deal with this even worse than men. Mm -hmm. I think we're just less represented, but we're not getting as much backlash. We're able to still have a heavy D and a notorious B.I.G. once upon a time. Right. And that's just been the mission. Where are all these little pockets of people who are exceptional, but don't get to shine? And we just want to shine a light there. And that's really been the initiative. And it's been growing. He's going to be out in L.A. next week. We're going to do some live episodes. We're partnering with a modeling agency that represents all plus size models to talk about their stories. He's also going to be shooting them. And like I said, it was not even just about body image, but also, again, with the being queer and just shedding light on all of these little pockets of where are we? Where are the people like us that aren't getting any shine?
0: Right. Right.
1: That's been the initiative.
0: That is a fucking wonderful initiative. And I applaud it. What brought you to L.A.? Was it songwriting or?
1: Yeah, songwriting. Right. Yeah, I had an opportunity. I was writing in New York since I was 16 and I wasn't getting very far at all. I thought I was, but I wasn't getting very far. Hit a wall, took a year off and then got back in. I met my former manager who recommended I came out here to work with a producer of his who became my main producer and uh, packed up after six months and moved 2017. So I just made seven years three days ago.
0: Congratulations. Six, six, years. six years ago. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Do you feel like you're a West Coast cat now?
1: I've been spending more time back home. I was there for about three months this year. I bounced back and forth. So I feel like I'm a bi-coastal cat. All
0: right. I'll I'll take that. That is a good political answer, Johnny. No beef. (laughs) And in terms of writing, particularly when it comes to writing from other people, I I am curious, just because I've never really been in a room of people writing songs, what is that process like? When you come up with an idea. Are you already thinking of who this would be good for? Or are you tailoring for people when they're in the room talking to you?
1: It's a mix of things. So when I got to Los Angeles, or even prior to that, I was a lot of times just in rooms with myself, the producer, maybe another co-writer, just creating. When I got to LA, I got here to work on Empire. So we were getting briefs. So they were very specific of, this is the scene, this is what we need, which was, side note, just a blessing in disguise, because my goal to just be around more queer artists and musicians started moving to LA. So to get here and be writing for Justice Smollett was like, okay, this is a queer character on TV, TV. played by a queer actor. Played by a
0: queer black man, yeah.
1: Yep, so that was incredible. But to answer your question, it can go either way. There's some days I show up, I have the whole song. Some days I show up, I got an idea depending on who it's for. If it's for a guy, I'll record it. So I got to figure out the performance. It really varies. And I've been blessed to work with some amazing co-writers. That I'll say that. I've heard some horror stories, but it's been pretty decent for me.
0: And how are you feeling mentally about your music industry experience as it is at the moment?
1: Right now, I feel like I'm in a stage of rebuilding. So songwriting was beautiful and I by no means had the worst experience, but it's still a bit of soul crushing work. You think about the amount of songs you write per year versus what gets taken and then what gets taken gets dissected. So you're basically just... On this factory line of your art, and then you're being told that sucks, that sucks, that sucks. Change that. Okay, maybe we'll take this and we'll pay you in a year.
0: Oh, (laughs) yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And I just didn't know any better, as we all don't. A lot of these careers don't have clear paths, especially in entertainment. And I really, really believed in myself, and I still do. And I went really hard those first couple of years, and I didn't take stock of anything that was going on remotely. I was just building a lot of really toxic habits toxic attachments, a lot of relationships that were rooted in anxiety and I hit a wall last June and that's why I ended up back in New York for 3 months cuz I wasn't feeling it. So I had to reassess and luckily I connected with, with Tariq and we decided to just do a couple of songs it turned into a full project and it's it, like I said it with the podcast it just all snowballed and I think this is what I was supposed to be doing. You know, releasing releasing music for myself being at the forefront And I still want to write, but I think this way I'm going to attract more artists that are in line with what I want to do. And I'm not just pitching at the label and at the fucking the Goliath. (laughs) It's a lot. So, yeah, right now I feel like I'm rebuilding, but it was bad for a minute.
0: How do you handle that rejection? Because think of being in school, right? And you're writing a paper and your paper comes back and you put your heart and soul in this paper. And the teacher is like, you got a D and there's a mm-hmm. red pen through half your paper. Mm-hmm. And I'm a sensitive guy. That would crush me. I would imagine it would crush a lot of other people. How do you get through that when it's, it's your professional life? Like, mm-hmm. how do you get through the levels of rejection that occur in the entertainment industry?
1: I thought I was supposed to power through. I realized that was not the answer. I mean, there probably is a way to power through that's healthier. The way that I was doing it was not healthy. And you got to think a lot of people are part of teams. I was part of a team, people that I really care about and love, but I was the new guy. I came out to LA at 25. A lot of these guys started at 15, 16. They had 10 years of trauma versus my two. (laughs) So I'm unpacking my trauma against their trauma. And then A lot of people have the power through mentality. So you're sitting there thinking, this doesn't make any sense. This isn't right. I don't think I should be enjoying this. And people are like, no, 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 it's cool. It's cool. This is how it is. It's fine. This is how it works. So I wasn't dealing with it. So these days I've been trying to find a healthier balance of just making sure that if I'm fighting for a song, I really believe in it. Because that was the other thing where I was writing so much and you're told you don't know which song is going to go. So just push every song. And some days I'd show up and write a song I didn't care about. And That song, get me a check. And now I'm torn because it's like, I didn't really like that song, but it's paying my bills. So it's a lot. And I wasn't dealing with any of it. So when I stopped working on music last June, I got into therapy. (laughs) That was it. And there was other things going on in my personal life as well. I just got out of a relationship. But getting into therapy really helped me understand that, oh, I wasn't unpacking any of this. Mm. I was just powering through. I would take the rejection and keep going, go to work, do whatever, like. I was a machine and it wasn't break to vary that (laughs) vary that
0: is this your first experience with therapy?
1: So I had a therapist a year prior and on paper, he was perfect. He was queer. He was Latino. He was in a relationship.
0: You got a a needle in a haystack.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I wasn't ready, I guess, because I was in a relationship at the time that wasn't working. And i tell him what's going on, and he would just sit there, very sassy, and just be like, girl, you've got to get out of that. And I didn't want to hear that. And I was just like, nah, no, what you mean? you would like, <laughs> Every time he'd come up on my screen judging me, and I was like, oh, this man don't care about me. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got out after like four sessions, but come to find out, he was telling me what I needed to hear, and I just wasn't ready. So this is my second experience with therapy. I came in a lot more open-minded, but the first time, I just got the needle in the haystack and and tossed it back in.
0: (laughs) I mean, that happens. There is such a lack of clinicians. There's a lack of male clinicians, period. But people of color, men of color, and then extrapolate from that queer men of color, you're only going to get so many people to choose from. Yeah. And it's not to say that, I mean, my current therapist happens to be straight and white. It's not to say that You have to have these things in common for somebody to work for you. And it's also not to say that everybody who shares those things with you is going to be a good fit for you, but it does help. Yeah. A friend of
1: mine taught me that you have to show up and you have to treat it as a tool. This is not your buddy. This is not your mom. You show up and you treat it as a tool. And if you are struggling to connect with your therapist, tell them because that's their job is to help you overcome or question like obstacle is in your mind. If you're trying to get help, you can get the help. Put the problems out on the table. And with my current therapist, I felt like that initially. I got with her and I was like, she just keeps telling me I'm great. And then eventually I finally was like, no, I just am not telling her what the hell's going on. So my bridge version sounds great.
0: Right. Like, how do you make that breakthrough? How do you finally get to a point where it's like, all right, I don't think I'm giving this person the tools to help me. It was just a conscious choice one day. I don't know. And it might be the
1: setting that I was into. Like I said, I, I went back home. I moved back in with my mother. I was home, my mother's apartment, just like rock bottom. I, when I left LA, it was to get away from my relationship, get away from my collaborators, really clear the air and just see who's the issue. And that's when I got the the calls are coming from inside the house realization. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was like, man. oh, it's me, it's yeah. me. And when I hit that moment, it was just like, look, this lady, she's here to help me. And I just told her everything. And my fear was I'm always so used to being so put together I was showing up to every session, like, interview ready. And I finally one day just didn't prep and I just rambled and she would just grab what she needed and questions. And that's how I started. I started just showing up unprepared because I'm like, if there's any place in my life where I'm allowed to be a hot mess, it should Therapy be here. Is- Nobody else needs this hot mess. Not my <laughs> mama. The bartender don't need this. The apps don't need this. Your therapist needs that. Yeah. So that's when I realized, and it's been good ever since.
0: And. There's got to be ways other than therapy that you kind of keep your head together, kind of jumping back into the fray in L.A. and working again and kind of doing all that stuff. So self-care is obviously an overused term. But what are you adding to therapy to complete the work that you're doing for yourself?
1: I've allowed my art to be part of my healing, which has been huge. I've really put myself into my music in ways that i never had before so that's been helpful and it still works so i know that i still have to create other things outside of that but work has become part of my healing i've been meditating i have a friend who just likes to try different shit so i'll go with him and do and paint we painted the other day and it like unlocked a new level for me in my brain okay what is this this is great (laughs) and i've been feeling super spiritual i've never been very religious but i do feel spiritual i do feel connected to something and i just lean into that however i can Whatever it is, if it's buying some crystals or whatever the hell makes me feel, I don't care if it's real, it's not real, it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that helps. And going for walks.
0: I mean, in LA?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> People walk yeah. in LA? Tell yeah. me more.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Chinatown and I'm right between two parks. I'm right between Elysian and uh, the state park. So I get to kind of just go and alternate. I have a dog, so it forces me to get out the house.
0: Oh, right on. So... As I mentioned, towards the top of our conversation, you got involved with Backline doing this Break the Barriers campaign that they just launched this week. How did you get involved with that?
1: So I have been in contact with this lawyer named Danny Oliva for about two years now, two or three years. A really dope music lawyer based out here in LA. And Danny just emails me anytime something pops up. It's like, are you interested in this? I'm like, sure, sure. So Danny sent me the email and I was like, hell yeah, responded. I actually got my friend in. My boy, Mike Brown is in the video as well. And I just showed up and the team was incredible. Everybody was really warm. It was funny because I was having a really rough day that day, rough mental health day. And I didn't tell them this actually, but I was scootering there and I almost felt like I wanted to cry. I felt like I was in a movie. I was on a scooter. I felt like a tear come down. I was just like really fucked that morning. I didn't know what it was. And I ended up seeing an artist that I used to work with and I stopped to talk to her and it helped me kind of gather myself. But when I got there, I kind of felt like a fraud. So I was like, fuck. I'm going to talk about mental health and I'm kind of in shambles. And the crew was just like, you're so nice. I was like, okay, (laughs) I'm giving off something that like, I'm not feeling it, but they're feeling it. Right. So it actually felt really authentic to the whole experience because it was like, that's why I'm here. I'm here to be in these spaces with people who are all doing the work. I felt like I was around people that were doing the work because everybody, whether or not they read it on me, they just reinforced just how happy they were that I was there. And it turned my whole day around. And I left feeling like, oh, I'm fucking crushing life. I'm not going to have it right every day, but I figured it out today.
0: It's an interesting thing. And again, I'm kind of relating this back to myself. When you're out there talking about things like mental health, and then you have a shitty day or a series of shitty days, and you're like, I'm a fucking fraud. Yeah. Um, But you're not. Which, look, I'm saying this now. And three weeks from now, I'm going to be depressed and be like, I hate my life. I'm such a fraud. But I, like the narrative, at least a narrative that I think is kind of stuck in my head from before, from when I didn't know better, is that it's not an up and down situation. It's not a fluid situation. You deal with the thing, you get better, and then you can talk about it from a state of I've conquered this. Yeah. But mental health, I don't think it's something that you conquer. -mm. I think a lot of it is situational. A lot of it for me is understanding old habits and trauma and how that affects the way that I react to every goddamn thing. Yeah. And it's constant work.
1: Yeah. That's the truth. I remember saying it that day when they were interviewing me. I was talking about wishing that I understood the power of therapy before I needed it (laughs) because it is, it's ongoing. It's a tool. It's a tool you should always have. And I just didn't know any better. But I get it now. And it's funny because you asked me earlier, actually, what things I've incorporated in my life along with therapy. Actually, prayer has been big for me. Every morning I get up and I pray out loud and I just go through the things that I'm thankful for. And every day, the first thing that comes to mind is I'm thankful to be self-aware. And I didn't know why the first Mm. couple of times I did it until I was talking to a friend and explaining all these things that I was worried about because I'm so self-aware of how they impacted me. He's like, do you realize already better because of it? Like some people navigate life not realizing what they're dealing with. And it brought it into perspective for me. And now every day I thank God or thank the universe or whoever for self-awareness. And I'm like, oh, I get now why that's so important to me because I know exactly what's going on, good or bad. I'm able to pinpoint way better than I was before.
0: I think having that perspective is super important. But the first step, I think, is recognizing, like recognizing the fact that you are doing things or you are feeling things for this reason. Um uh, mm-hmm. Actually, the first step is just recognizing that you're doing things. You're feeling things. The second step is understanding why you're doing these things. Mm-hmm. And then step after that, I think, is figuring out how to manage it. Yeah. And you could have a recipe, but it's going to taste different every time. Like every step that you take to apply to an issue, to try to solve it, fix it, whatever, it's not going to work the same in every situation. No, no, so, not you know, at all. I think fluidity is something that's really important to recognize across all facets. Uh, Yeah,
1: and that makes me actually think back to when you asked me how I dealt with some of the rejection in the music industry and stuff. I think when I first started, the reason why it used to affect me so bad was because I wasn't aware of, hey, this is to a degree how things work, or at least there's an option that this might get turned down. I thought that just that blind belief in everything, and I would get so disappointed. And then when I started to realize, hey, you shoot every shot, and that's it. You make them or you don't make them, but I was focused on them all having to go in. So I think it was that shift of perspective and made things a little bit easier for me once I was on the other side of it and realizing you're breaking your own heart thinking everything's supposed to work. Like you said, it is up and down. So I have to accept that there are going to be days where people don't want what the hell I'm selling them. And I became a lot happier then and was able to just refocus on as long as I like what I'm making, then I could just sales their loss.
0: Right. It's not a reflection on you. It's a reflection on them. Mm -hmm. that's another important perspective to have so looking forward what is your mission this is a big big fucking question like what what is your mission going forward particularly when it comes to what you're doing to um foreground queer artists of color queer people Mm -hmm. of color what is your big picture kind of thing I don't know if there's a big
1: picture just yet I know that a lot of what I'm doing is rooted in personal growth and healing so I think I'm really prioritizing that, just the feeling good, highlighting people, supporting people, connecting people. I don't know what I ultimately want. I mean, I would love to be able to be a part of the next big, great queer pop star. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've written for some exceptional queer artists. Shout out to Keenan Lonsdale. Shout out to Lon Burnside. I've written on projects for them that are coming out and they're incredible. Is but... dope.
0: I met him at the Glad Awards last summer. Okay. Yeah.
1: Incredible. Incredible artist, incredible project. He just announced today he's going to be doing show in london so attached to things like that which i'm excited about and maybe before i would have thought that that was the dream but it's not really that i think like i said it is just prioritizing my healing my joy and allowing other people like me to be able to experience that because maybe they didn't have the tools that i had and i can kind of help navigate them towards like hey there's happiness over here come on (laughs) right that's what i want right now i just want to really build a brand that I'm proud of and continue to make art that I'm proud of and hopefully inspire people and connect people, keep connecting people.
0: I think connecting people is the move. I'm a big community person. So it's always kind of like, you take your experiences and you try to help people where you can and just kind of build on... I grew up in a house with a lot of fucking people. In the way I see things, the world is kind of just a microcosm of that house full of people. And you just want to try to all... Help each other the whole nine yards.
1: Yeah, I think that's super important. And I think just for the people who didn't grow up in those big houses, just letting them know that they could build their own house too. Right. Like, hey, you didn't have one. Let's build one. Let's figure it out. Just showing people that they don't have to be alone because I felt like that for a long time. But I think it was just self-imposed isolation. (laughs) I'm coming out of it
0: want to give John a big, big shout-out. Thank you for taking the time to appear on uh, the podcast. I know you have a lot of irons in the fire, so uh, I appreciate you taking a few minutes out of your schedule to sit down and chop it up with me. Uh, Yanni is on Instagram. You can find him at Yanni Blue, Y-A-W-N-Y-B-L-E-W. He does a lot of things, and uh, one of the other main things that he does is the podcast, Bigger Than Our Dreams, and you can also find them on Instagram. Uh, that's uh, him and uh, Tariq. Uh, It is B-I-I-G-G-E-R, then our dreams pod on Instagram. And uh, if you want to know more about what Yanni Blue does, you can find uh, his music on just about every streaming platform that there is. And uh, you can also go to yanniblue.com. So uh, once again, big shout out to John for taking the time. Uh, We should pick this up at some point and do it again. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill, or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on, Uh, rate, comment help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon. Actually, patreon.com slash detoxicity pod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool ass sticker, lots of stuff. Once again, patreon.com slash detoxicity pod. Quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music and, uh, doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time. Peace.